Welcome to another episode of Watt, Words About Technology and Tools. I'm your host, Greg Dudek, and I'll be talking to you again about things you can do with technology and science in your own home and with your own hands. As usual, you can find notes on this podcast at www.dudek.org slash watt. Well, this week I'm going to talk a little bit about the DARPA Urban Challenge, which recently took place in Victorville, California, and which I visited. Um, So the idea of this uh, event, sponsored by the U.S. military, was to be able to build autonomous robotic cars. And so in some sense you can think of this as an episode about how to build your own autonomous robotic car, as long as you have a couple of million dollars to spend. Now, the, the idea here is to build a car which drives completely all by itself without any person involved in the process. So it has to be able to drive down the road, it has to be able to obey the rules of the road, slow down in the right places, not go too fast, not go, to go too slow, be able to interact with other vehicles, and in the longer run, although not right now, it has to be able to cope with the possibility of things like pedestrians in the road and, and not hitting them and appropriately swerving around them or slowing down, so basically making its own plan and in, as well doing navigation so deciding how to get from one place to another in a sensible way. So this idea of building a robot car has been around for several years. A number of different groups have been trying to do it for quite a long time, and in some sense it's one of the uh, short-term fantastical objectives that robotics really should be able to deliver on in the near future. DARPA, the sponsor of this event, is the United States Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It's an organization that's been around for, well, I don't know, since the uh, the late 1950s, and uh, the whole point of DARPA is to be able to push technologies with with military potential um, and and use those technologies to basically encourage uh, groundbreaking scientific research. So DARPA, in fact, is is the same organization that by and large, is really responsible for developing the technologies that made up the Internet. The Internet was once upon a time called the DARPAnet, because it was sponsored and developed by DARPA, but DARPA funding. And before that, it was called the ARPANET, the Advanced Research Projects Agency of the U.S. Defense Department. And they've had a number of interesting technologies they've worked on over years. They, they basically fund a lot of way-out research, uh, some of it, gets migrated into civilian use and some of it gets migrated into military use, but they're a fundamentally military agency. And uh, and it's probably worth noting that the uh, the U.S. Congress has mandated that by the year 2015, something like one-third of the operational ground combat vehicles uh, operated by the U.S. military need to be unmanned. In other words, they need to be essentially purely robotic vehicles. Uh, and the idea here is to, by and large, get human beings out of the, the warfighting role as much as possible. Uh, which has a lot of interesting spin-offs for civilian technology and is also kind of scary in a in a Terminator-esque kind of way. At any rate, this idea of building a, a robot vehicle has been around for, for quite a few years. It's probably uh, on the order of 40 years research that's uh, been devoted to building this kind of device, not only by uh, ARPA, but, but for an, by a number of ti- kind of groups and uh, for a number of different kinds of reasons. Um, and in fact, we can see automation and, and semi-automation appearing in many different kinds of vehicles, all the way from airplane, which have very effective autopilot systems uh, that, that work really well, although they don't have to do very much uh, collision avoidance, 
to boats and, and to automobiles where, where things like cruise control and automated parking systems can be seen as the as the first kind of steps towards robotic uh, operation. Uh, there was a group in, in uh, Japan at Tsuba University uh, who developed back in, the, in, in around 1977 uh, a vehicle that at a fairly low speed could drive down a, a fairly empty road at, at kind of at, uh, fully automatedly without any human interaction. And then uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, there was a large project sponsored by DARPA to build unmanned ground vehicles, which didn't really succeed very well, and, and by and large got scooped by a group out of Germany, out of the Bundeswehr University, uh, led in particular by uh, a guy named Ernst Dickmans. And, and the idea was there to use computer vision to observe the lines on highways, the lines and the boundaries of highways, and, uh, and they built a vehicle that could drive on the order of 100 miles an hour, uh, 60 to 100 miles an hour, uh, down a highway completely automatically without any human intervention. And now it couldn't do very well at complicated maneuvers like getting on and off the highway and avoiding other vehicles and things like that, but it did do a pretty good job and it could in fact pass other cars. And uh, and then in the 1990s, Carnegie Mellon University developed a vehicle called the NavLab, which was a, a really sort of brown-breaking device, which drove almost all the way from the east coast of the U.S. to the west coast of the U.S. fully automatically, with only a little bit of human control, mostly for things like overpasses or construction zones and things like that. But it did on the order of, I think, 95 to 98 percent of the driving autonomously. Again, uh, not dealing with the really hard navigational cases, but still doing, because it stayed on the highway, but still doing an amazingly good job. And then uh, a few years ago, the, the Defense Advanced Research Agency, DARPA, had their first uh, grand challenge out in the desert where the idea was to build a car that could go along a dirt road, uh, a graded road, so it had areas where the road went up and down and where it got narrower. And it wasn't just a matter of following lines on the road, but you had to do some fairly sophisticated navigation. And, uh, and the first year they had that challenge, none of the vehicles really could accomplish it. And the second year they had the challenge, which is 2006, uh, some of the vehicles succeeded and completed the uh, the challenge, which was to drive 100 miles in those conditions, but they did rely pretty heavily on GPS, so they essentially had a map and it told them to some extent where to go, even though they had to do some local collision avoidance and planning and things like that. Uh, and so all this has culminated in the urban challenge, which took place uh, in 2007 uh, in Victorville, California, in a, in a little sort of mock-up town. Well, my colleague and friend Dave Meager and I decided to drive out to the urban challenge test field and check out what was going on. We rented a car in San Diego and drove the two and a half miles northeast that took us up to Victorville, a pretty small, almost ghost town-like environment with a pretty good-sized airport, abandoned military airport in it, and this airport had been converted into a small test town that was used for, for the uh, evaluation of these vehicles. And as we approached, it was pretty much a barren, desert-like area and you could see helicopters flying overhead and then as you got closer you could see vehicles driving around a heavily fenced in chunk of road and as you got closer still you could realize that these vehicles had a lot of gear on top of them and no people inside and then in between the robotic vehicles there were uh, test drivers or stunt drivers who were there to basically present kind of obstacles to those robotic vehicles and these test, test drivers were pretty heavily geared up with helmets and, and crash gear inside the car so that if one of the robot vehicles went uh, went wacky 
the uh, the guy inside would hopefully not get too badly hurt. And in, in fact, that was a serious risk because some of the vehicles, like the the one developed by the industrial Oshkosh team, were really really large. Like this was basically a, a truck, a major heavy truck like vehicle with a lot of gear on it. And if so, if it had gone uh, gone haywire, it, it could have presented a serious risk to the drivers, the audience, to anybody else. And in fact, that vehicle was eliminated in the in the last rounds of the competition because it did collide with a, a cement obstacle, although not at uh, not at high speed or in a really wild, uncontrolled way. And so they built this fake town, and the idea was to have the vehicles drive around in this quasi-urban setting. And so in this case, the vehicles didn't just have to follow a road, but they had to stop at stop signs, they had to avoid the curb, they had to avoid the buildings, they had to interact with other vehicles at times, and they had to maintain an appropriate speed, so they couldn't go too fast and they couldn't go too slow. And the idea here was to essentially accomplish a set of navigational tasks as quickly as possible, without doing them too quickly. So basically acting like more or less good drivers. And uh, and some uh, something like 53 vehicles started developing technologies towards this DARPA urban challenge. And uh, at the end of the day, six of them completed the challenge. So there were various checkpoints over the course of the year where teams uh, were evaluated in terms of how well they were doing. And if you didn't accomplish certain tasks well enough, then you were essentially dropped from the competition. And then uh, the very last event at Victorville, I think there were 11 teams that started out, but due to various kind of errors that some of the vehicles made, for example, you know, running into a pylon, they were eliminated from the competition and six of them finished off and actually did everything, which was uh, astonishingly impressive uh, result and probably more than most people expected when the urban challenge was announced. So in order to build one of these automated cars, what do you have to do? Well, there's really three fundamentally different kinds of activity and a lot of side tasks. And one is that you have to modify the physical vehicle so that it can be uh, automatically driven. Uh, regular cars, of course, depend on humans to turn the wheel and press the pedals and things like that. And by and large, they you can't just plop in a computer and run the whole thing automatically the way you might with, say, uh, an, an autopilot-driven system. And so you've got to modify the drive system and the control system. And, and that's a big thing. And many of the teams had uh, participation from automobile companies, such as General Motors or Volkswagen, that helped them modify the vehicles and, and participated in the engineering. And then you've got to do sensing with the environment, so you've got to take measurements of the world around you and figure out where things are, where the walls are, where the streets are, where the other vehicles are, and things like that. And so the collection and interpretation of that sensing data is a really big and substantial task, which involves quite a lot of computation. And then lastly, you've got to do some planning, which involves trying to decide, given that you've made these inferences or guesses about where things are, where you're going to go next, and how you're going to avoid the next obstacle, and how you're going to get where you have to go and how you should moderate your speed and your orientation and things like that to accomplish whatever tasks you have to do. And so that's really a kind of planning problem. Now, of course, behind all that, you've got to instrument the car, you've got to put a lot of compute computational gear on board, you've got to, of course, mechanically fixture it so it doesn't vibrate and it stays together. Uh, some of the teams had a lot of computation in the back of the vehicles. Uh, most teams had something that looked pretty much like a uh, industrial server rack in the trunk of their car, and uh, the vehicles I saw seemed to have on the order of you know maybe as few as as eight computers. I think I think I thought something like eight in the back of the uh, Stanford car to a much larger number in the back of the MIT vehicle. The MIT vehicle had a lot of computers, a lot of pretty hefty dual processor machines, and so 
the, of course, if you've got all these machines in the back of your car, you've got to set up the appropriate networking control to drive them all to make them go. And you've got to set up power for these things. You can't just sort of plug them into the cigarette lighter of the car. And so you've got a pretty hefty job in terms of just doing the power control and the networking, getting the whole thing running and then hooking it all up together. Then on top of that, of course, the really big challenge, I think, is to build the software and the artificial intelligence that lets you make the appropriate inferences of the vision data or the radar data. So there are pretty much three main kinds of sensing systems that uh, I saw vehicles using uh, this year. Uh, the One of them was vision, using cameras to make inferences about what's in front of the vehicle. And that's in many ways the most promising sensor, because it gives you long-range sensing. You can see far ahead. It also gives you short-range short sensing. It's a very rich sensor. You can see a lot of different kinds of things. It's not too expensive, and it's very powerful. And it's also very intuitive, since it's what people use. Unfortunately, the downside of vision-based sensing is that it's a really hard problem. And I think it's fair to say that it's not really solved uh, to any substantial extent yet. There's a lot of research left to do. And as a result, I think most of the teams didn't rely very, very heavily on computer vision. It was an important factor for some of the teams, such as MIT. But uh, I, I think none of the teams really relied fundamentally upon vision. What most of the teams really did seem to depend very heavily on is laser sensing or LIDAR. LIDAR is a technology where you send out a laser beam and you measure how long it takes for a laser pulse to go out from the sensor, hit something and come back to you. And so you're measuring the time of flight for a beam of light, a pulse of light, and that time of flight directly corresponds to a distance. And if you're using a laser, you're measuring distance along a line, and then you very quickly sweep that line back and forth and up and down, and so you can get a, a, a scan of all the distances to different points in front of the vehicle. And that's the, the principle of LIDAR, which is very much like radar except using light. Of course, it's a pretty fancy and somewhat expensive technology because the delay times for a pulse of light to leave the vehicle, hit something, and come back are extremely short. And so sometimes it's based on direct timing measurements, sometimes it's based on laser interferometry. Um, and many of the vehicles had quite a few different kinds of lasing systems. Uh, the Stanford vehicle, again, the one that I got the best really close look at that I could put my hands on, seemed to have on the order of six or eight different brands of laser sensor and then multiple units of some of these. And two of the most familiar and uh, most uh, commonly used LiDAR sensors are the SICK sensor made by a German company, S-I-C-K, uh, sometimes around ZIK. And, uh, and the, the SICK sensor sends out a stripe. So it, it basically takes a laser beam and, uh, and uses a, a mechanical apparatus to sweep the laser beam uh, back and forth along a line. And so you get a one-dimensional line of measurements very, very quickly on the order of once every tenth uh, of a second or so, depending on how much you average them together, uh, you get this line of measurements and it gives you distances along the line. And then what teams often do is one of two things, either put a number of these six on the vehicle so that you get different lines, different distances at different elevations in front of the vehicle. Imagine looking through a slit and then having several slits in front of your eyes so you could see different sort of slices of the world. And uh, in the 2006 Grand Challenge, for example, some of the teams had quite a few six in different orientations and different heights. Um, and the Stanford vehicle again had this the, this year as well. And uh, and also they had uh, lasers pointing out the side so they could not only look ahead of them and measure the distances of where things were on the road and where the road was going, whether it was tilting and things like that, but they could also measure the possibility of having vehicles coming up beside them or obstacles coming up beside them. And then, um, so six are relatively commonplace sensors. They're on the order of $5,000 a pop. 
which you know for these kinds of things is really not that not that expensive. We certainly have a bunch of them back at the, back at my lab at McGill. And then uh, a fancier, newer kind of sensor that a large number of the f qualifying finishing teams had was made by Velodyne. And this is a, th a device that looks kind of like a large blender, a, a large steel uh, blender. It spins around the way a blender might spin, although the outside of it spins at about f 900 RPM, 900 rotations per minute, or 3 to 900, depending on how fast you run it. And it has 64 laser stripers inside. And these things all spin around uh, like hell on wheels. And so uh, you're getting 64 measurements uh, uh, in, in different heights and different directions. And these things are all spinning at 3 to 900 RPM. Altogether, it's giving you back something like uh, a million distance measurements per second. Uh, and so a number of vehicles had this Velodyne sensor uh, typically on, on the top of the roof of the vehicle. And as they drove down, a row, ro down, down the road, they were getting lots of measurements of things in different directions. Um, and that, that looked like a really impressive and powerful sensing mechanism. Some of the problems with the Velodyne and some of the challenges that the teams had to cope with, aside from just processing all the data that they got, was that the Velodyne seemed to be best for certain ranges of distances. And calibrating the data and interpreting it was, was I think, a bit of a challenge in some cases. And then some of the teams, probably many of the teams, used microwave radars. So they had radars, for example, in the bumpers of some of the vehicles. And these radar units used radar, uh, which is essentially uh, radio waves, in a, in a manner very similar to the way we're talking about using laser. And they would allow that would allow the vehicles to measure the distances to, say, the, the road in front of them. And I think that microwave radar was used for very close-up things, so things on the order of uh, a meter or two, which is to say three to six feet away probably for collision avoidance and, and things like that. And uh, so the combination of the laser, the vision, and the radar sensor um, or sensors allowed them to get a pretty good picture of everything that was in front of them and to the sides of them. And as I said, many of the teams seem to have between, I would say, half a dozen and, and maybe as, ma as many as 20 different sensing uh, devices uh, arrayed on top and around uh, uh, the vehicles, getting them a good picture of what's out there. What did these vehicles cost? I think probably the typical prices one might expect is that they're they carried about uh, between 500000 and $2 million worth of gear and engineering on board. Uh, I don't think that's really costing in the, uh, the cost of the engineers and students and people who did uh, the hardcore work on these things. I don't think most of the price was actually paid by the teams because uh, much of the equipment was contributed by the participants. Uh, most of the teams had a large number of industrial sponsors, and those industrial sponsors got two things back. One is they they got people testing out their devices in, in very innovative and powerful ways, which basically gave them back engineering uh, results. And the other is they got a lot of very good publicity. And lastly, they got the potential of, of becoming the suppliers to ongoing technologies that, that grow out of this kind of stuff. Uh, and I, I guess it's worth mentioning that if you want to build one of these things uh, at home, not only do you need to invest in the, the vehicle, the engineering of the vehicle, uh, the drivetrain, things like that, and the sensors and the computation, but uh, you probably want to build yourself a, a test track. I understand that the test track in Vectorville, California that was used for this cost on the order of $20 million, a little more than $20 million to build, uh, and that included stands for the uh, people who watched the event and the sort of mock-up town that, w that was... Uh, built in an old Air Force base out there. And 
and all of that. Um, of course, if you want to do this in your own backyard, I guess it'll be a little less expensive. Um, so it's a pretty interesting event and uh, surprisingly effective. And uh, I think it really sort of raises the bar in a lo in a significant way regarding uh, what autonomous robot vehicles are able to do today and, and where the research on these things is going. Um, there are many people who believe that, in fact, we're ready to see robot vehicles on the roads every day or on the highway so that your car might have a sort of semi-robotic mode that you could flick on, at least in certain situations. For example, in uh, long highway driving stretches, uh, you could imagine there might be a lane in the highway reserved for vehicles that are being uh, auto autonomously guided uh, by their essentially robotic systems. And once you get into this lane, the vehicle goes into robot mode, and it stays in robot mode until you get out of the lane. The real problems are how you interface with the people in the vehicle and how you switch in and out of these modes. And uh, probably equally important, or maybe more important, is how you deal with the liability issues. So who's going to assume the blame and the cost if one of these vehicles makes a mistake and has an accident, or if the human somehow interferes with the vehicle and causes it to go uh, make a mistake? And probably that question of liability and blame and the legal issues are, are, I would say, in some sense, the biggest obstacle right now to getting these semi-autonomous vehicle technologies into the field and into everyday use. And some of the advantages of them in everyday use is that uh, they might actually allow the highways to run more efficiently and they might allow the cars to run more efficiently, not only in terms of how fast it takes to get to one place to another or in terms of traffic congestion, but also in terms of fuel economy. Basically, if you use robotic systems to drive the car, you can get from point A to point B with a more efficient use of the gas in the car, which is a pretty big incentive. So for all those reasons in terms of why it's hard to deploy these technologies, even though the science is done, uh, one way to get them in there is perhaps through public vehicles like buses. And of course we've seen automatic uh, monorail trains and things like that in various places. But even buses, there are a lot of these logistic and legal challenges. And so of course that's perhaps why we'll see these things first used in military vehicles where uh, those liability issues can be uh, dispensed with in other ways. So I um, hope you enjoyed the report on the DARPA Urban Challenge. You can find a little more information on my website.